This is an excerpt from Lisa Gettleman's Paper Knowledge from the Afterword. It opens with three quotes. The first is from Amy Spencer, who wrote DIY, The Rise of Lo-Fi Culture. The 1930s sci-fi zine, the data art zine, the chapbook created by beat writers in the 1950s, small-scale radical magazines of the 1960s, punk zines of the 1970s, the zine explosion of the 1990s, online blogs and guerrilla news reporting of today all started with individuals sharing a similar DIY ethos. The next quote is from Stephen Duncombe from Notes from the Underground. Zine producers have historically embraced new technology. They quickly adopted small hand presses in the 1930s, mimeograph machines in the 1950s, photocopy machines in the 1980s, and desktop publishing in the 1990s. The last is a quote from Clay Shirky from Here Comes Everybody. The future presented by the internet is the mass amateurization of publishing and a switch from why publish this to why not. The character of amateurdom may be gleaned from the American Antiquarian Society's collection of more than 50,000 amateur newspapers. Early examples are, quote, pen printed, that is written by hand, or job printed by hired printers. But the collection suggests that the production of amateur papers increased tenfold after 1869, when a small plate and press called the Novelty Job Printing Press came on the market aimed at amateurs, including merchants and druggists, as well as at boys. Amateurdom organized as such soon followed. A cursory survey of the Dom is available from contemporary sources. The children's magazine St. Nicholas, for example, published an account of amateur newspapers in 1882, and the following year Thomas Harrison published a 330-page book, The Career and Reminiscences of an Amateur Journalist and History of Amateur Journalism, the bulk of which narrates his life as an amateur from 1875 all the way to 1878, that is, from the age of 15 to the age of 18. A second volume was promised, but does not seem to have been published. Accounts like these agree in most of their particulars. Indeed, the features of amateurdom seem quickly to have achieved a potted quality, rehearsed again and again as core themes that consumed the geographically, quote, vast literary society of this little literary world, as Harrison puts it. Amateurdom was intensely self-referential, forever consolidating itself as itself. Motivations were clear. Although, quote, the anticipated pleasure of seeing articles from his own pen in print was an entrancing one, quote, amateurs like Harrison did what they did out of a keen ambition to become known to, even to become storied among, other amateurs, through the circulation of their publications via the mails. The U.S. Post Office allowed free exchanges of newspapers until 1878, when it cracked down on those that lacked significant subscriber lists and only exchanged copies. Two offending categories of publication were singled out. Printers trade circulars dressed up as periodicals and amateur newspapers. The so-called, quote, postal troubles briefly put a damper on things, but amateurdom continued as its active contributors estimated by Harrison at eight or nine hundred. That was likely a zenith. In what sense was amateurdom amateur? This is a more complicated question than it may first appear. Harrison indicates when a publication he refers to, but would never mistake to define amateur in quotes, in contrast to in quotes professional, and leave it at that. 
For one thing, taken together, these terms too easily invite anachronism. Any profession against which these amateurs might have been defined was still emerging. Professional journalism did not yet exist. There were no journalism schools, no professional associations for journalists, and no avowed ideal of objectivity. And we know that the roles of author, editor, and publisher were professionalized primarily insofar as individuals made and were known to make a living writing, editing, or publishing, or doing some combination of the same. Printing, of course, was not a profession, it was a trade dressing itself as an art, in quotes, the art preservative, and one that had for decades experienced wrenching structural changes, loosely put, in quotes, industrialization, as the apprenticeship and journeyman systems broke down, while some labors, like press work, were de-skilled and others, like typesetting, were not, or at least not yet. Print production in general experienced explosive growth, yet talented printers like Harpel struggled. Job printing grew more specialized in its distinction from periodical and bookwork, inspiring still further innovations in printing technology, among them smaller iron hand presses that after 1850 included myriad versions of the Platon Press, or Jobber. It was this press that eventually miniaturized for and pitched to amateurs. As one purveyor of printing outfits urged, every man his own printer, every boy a Ben Franklin. According to Harrison, the real history of amateurdom didn't begin until the novelty press. St. Nicholas magazine agreed. The figure cut by Benjamin Woods and his little press in these accounts, like those that have followed, suggests that the amateurs of the Dom might be reckoned in purely technological terms, but that too would be a mistake. New media do not themselves make amateur cultural producers, even though each of the two is regularly cast in terms of the other. Access to new tools was key, it's true, but access to consumer culture is much more to the point. Following Karen Sanchez Epler, we need to see amateurdom as a specific and specifically gendered class formation, part of, quote, enormous and extremely swift shifts in the cultural understanding of childhood, work, and play, end quote then underway in American culture. Childhood leisure, especially boyhood leisure, was a class privilege increasingly enshrined in compulsory schooling laws and epitomized in the merchandising of goods specifically for children. By this light, amateurs of amateurdom, mostly but not entirely male, can't be defined against as much as they can against the figure of a working class child. Harrison's corresponding other wasn't Harpel, it was the newsboy, the bootblack, and already a little bit of a throwback, the trade apprentice and printer's devil. If the figure of the working child was associated in the popular imagination with play, as Sanchez Epler indicates, then it made perfect sense that middle-class play got associated with work. Again and again, amateurs insist to their readers how hard they work, how much time and effort their papers require, while they also stress that their labors are self-improving, yet money-losing, not profit-making. In so adamantly describing itself as a realm of hard work and money-losing, amateurdom was able at once to participate in consumer culture and to reject its logic. This wasn't just consumption, in other words. They didn't say they were buying the same things, only that they lost money and spent time and energy. The repeated lip service paid to nonprofit production locates amateur newspapers, as Miranda Joseph writes of nonprofit organizations generally, within, quote, the absent center of capitalism, 
a place where the very subjects of capitalism have gone missing, revealing their discontents. These subjects abscond by dint of energies expended compensatorily toward a communal cause. Today we'd call the result community. By 1872 or 1873, North Americans at least said amateurdom. The amateurs were individually ambitious and unstintingly critical of one another, prone both to empire building and to fractiousness. They were capitalists in training, dressed in a classically liberal discourse of the educable self, yet they zealously participated in and cherished their printed and postal community and the corresponding gaggle of amateur press associations that they organized to represent and support it. Amateurdom arose not in the commonality of choosing and buying, but rather in the collective imagination of itself as a sphere of productive communication, an imaginary domain for what observers of later zines have called, in quotes, cooperative individuality and healthy intersubjectivity. The tensions involved in training for capitalism by abandoning its putative object of desire, that is, profit, made perfect sense within the ongoing construction of young adulthood as a liminal stage, between and yet neither. We might consider, too, that these tensions emerged partly as an outgrowth of readerly subjectivities that evolved amid the post-bellum explosion of secular magazines for young readers. Harrison himself acknowledges amateurdom's debt to Oliver Optics magazine, which chirpily editorialized in July 1867 during its first year of publication, quote, We suppose Lowe's Press is the best for boys. If they don't like it, try Ho's 12-cylinder press. The Lowe's Press was a portable field press used during the Civil War. By 1873, Oliver Optic, the intensely prolific William Taylor Adams, was offering both coverage of and encouragement to amateur printers, editors, and journalists in the pages of his magazine. Children's periodicals had long sought active readerships, but the new magazines perfected them. In November 1865, our young folks chidingly instructed children how to write to the editors. Oliver Optics included one regular column called Our Letter Bag, and soon included another called wish correspondence, where readers named the subjects they were interested in to solicit correspondence from other readers with the same interests. And St. Nicholas, the magazine, reinvented the letters column so that it more readily promoted, quote, community and connection among all of its readers and contributors. Like the shared fantasy of a textual commons, which Jared Gardner suspects cut against the success of so many of the earliest American magazines, by encouraging feelings of shared ownership that may actually have inhibited people from paying their subscriptions, these new magazines for children carried mixed messages. Yes, they were crucial agents in the interpolation of children as subjects of consumer culture, yet they also spun the accessory magic of a less, even a non-commercial, communal domain. The fantasiecla psychologists who eventually described adolescence as a developmental stage noted a, quote, reading craze among their subjects. Had they noticed amateurdom, they might have seen it as a peculiarly acute form of that craze. Amateur youngsters read so crazily that they wrote, edited, printed, and published. One example is chronicled in amateur lore. Following the model of earlier magazines, 
Golden Days for Boys and Girls, founded in 1882, cultivated correspondence among readers and clubs for readers. At some point, quote, a member of one of its clubs suggested the idea of issuing a small paper to serve as the organ of his particular club. The idea caught fire, and hundreds of these club papers were issued until 2nd September 1895, when a 14-year-old named William H. Greenfield started the United Amateur Press Association to organize them. That same trajectory, from the readership of commercially published magazines with letter columns, to clubs of readers, to amateur publications that comment on each other, to finally a self-organizing sphere of postal communication and exchange, would also describe the 1930s evolution of fanzines and fandom, as it was eventually called. But that may be jumping ahead too quickly. It's a pattern, except when it's not. I should emphasize that money-losing amateurs like Harrison and Greenfield didn't say they were jumping off the good ship capital or steering it clear of the rocks of adulthood. They said the opposite. It was feeling that gave them away. Amateurdom was an effective state as well as a textual commons. Young Harrison became possessed, he said, by the desire to join amateurdom. A printing fever, quote, seized another amateur, David Bethune, and elsewhere it was a, quote, mania for editorship that prevailed. The writer, H.P. Lovecraft, suffered a short-lived, quote, poetical delusion when he first encountered amateurdom in 1914 at the ripe age of 23. As he explains in a brief reflection titled, What Amateurdom and I Have Done for Each Other, he was introduced to the United Amateur Press Association when he was, quote, as close to the state of vegetation as any animal well can be. Perhaps I might best have been compared to the lowly potato in its secluded and subterranean quiescence. The United, in which Lovecraft quickly became chairman of the Department of Public Criticism, gave him at once, quote, a renewed will to live, the, quote, very world in which to live and also, quote, life itself. That figure of the lowly, secluded, and quiescent potato, known to us today as the couch potato, probably alludes to Samuel Butler's Erewhon, a novel that includes a humorous bit on the emotions and sentience of a potato. Lovecraft remained a denizen in the exponent of amateurdom throughout his career, even while enjoying success as a professional writer of fiction in the Erewhonian vein. But can the amateurdom that Lovecraft joined and described in the 1910s and 1920s be the same amateurdom of Harrison and the others from the 1870s and 1880s? Better questions. Are the amateurs of one era the amateurs of another? Is do-it-yourself, DIY, publishing the same thing whenever and however you happen to do it? So much of what Lovecraft describes about the United rings familiar. He acknowledges its origins around 1870, notes a common yearning to have thoughts and ideals permanently crystallized in the magic medium of type, and celebrates those whose labor, and celebrates those who labor, quote, purely for love, without the stultifying influence of commercialism. The amateur press associations, the United and the National, founded in 1876, had persisted and matured, each holding annual meetings, publishing an official organ, serving as clearinghouses, and awarding annual laureates in the different genres of amateurdom, poetry, sketch, history, and essay, 
as well as eventually a laureate quote for the best home printed paper, which suggests a decline in the number of amateurs who were printing their own. Yet according to Lovecraft's telling, amateurdom was open to all comers. Boys and girls of 12 and men and women of 60, parents and their sons and daughters, college professors and grammar school pupils. Being open to all was now part of the reigning ethos, important to the encouragement of a genial form for instruction and fraternal cheer. Amateurdom, it seems, had gradually become less of a liminal stage in life, a mixture of training for and unspoken deferral of, and more of a clubhouse or hideaway geared towards self-improving self-expression, tenanted by successive waves, well, actually trickles, of far-flung amateurs warmed partly by the accumulated lore of years gone by. The annual laureate for history generally meant the history of amateurdom. Along the way, one might speculate that amateurdom had also become less of a formative assertion of middle-class identity and more of a formative assertion within it. The same distinction between amateur and commercial publications held sway, in other words, but no longer were the contrastive others of amateurdom working-class urban youths or the long-god trade apprentice. More likely, the others of amateurdom were either sorry couch potatoes, isolate and quiescent subjects of the emerging mass culture, or else they were other amateurs finding their own alternatives, some comfortable with the label amateur and others not. Those alternatives might be organized amateur athletics, the high school yearbook, or the college newspaper. One must wonder, in particular, about amateur radio, which exploded onto the scene with the 1906 Crystal Set and Boy Operator playing the role of the 1869 novelty press and boy Benjamin Franklin. The far-flung amateur radio operators didn't need to imagine a realm called amateurdom. They had one called the Ether, though perhaps it was a little diffuse. Amateur radio operators didn't need to publish on paper or communicate by post, though the eventual practice of exchanging QSL cards by mail to confirm radio contact does make interesting food for thought. QSL was telegraph and radio code for, I confirm receipt of your transmission. In less than a decade, amateur radio in the United States had probably exceeded amateur journalism by three orders of magnitude, several hundred thousand amateurs instead of several hundred, as wireless captured the popular imagination. Meanwhile, the amateur writers, editors, printers, and publishers of amateurdom's long maturity, a small group of them called the Fossils, acting in the mode of alumni, still exists, shared a history that tended to be chronicled year by year with elections, schisms, and intrigues, as well as an occasional and fleeting golden age, all studied with the names of predecessors and their typically short-lived publications. Harrison had approvingly discerned a shift from sensational to pure literature during his brilliant, if brief, career. 1886 brought turmoil surrounding an amateur literary lyceum, dead in 1888. 1891 saw the publication of a 500-page retrospective literary anthology, or cyclopedia. And Lovecraft eventually likened amateurdom to, quote, a university stripped of every artificiality and conventionality and thrown open to all without distinction, its membership seeking mutually, quote, to draw their minds from the commonplace to the beautiful. As a putative revival of the uncommercial spirit, amateurdom had become an anti-modern gesture toward authenticity, evolving in contrast to the slick magazines that heralded mass culture, 
and during the same extended moment in which literary critical authority was ceasing to be a matter of individual taste or editorial selection on the part of commercial publishing and was instead becoming a matter of academic consensus. Lovecraft and his compatriots soldiered on as junior elementary athletes, exerting individual discernment toward their own common cause. The fact that amateurdom was, in general, quote, more newsy than literary, that is, more about itself than about literature or anything else, only made it more fun. The answer then is no, amateurs of one era are not the amateurs of another, even when a continuous tradition exists to connect them. H.P. Lovecraft was no Thomas Harrison in more ways than one. What changed and continues to change across time is not the DIY ethos, or even what the amateur happens to do, but rather the ways that doing and its doability are situated within the broader cultural economy and the lives that cultural economy helps to shape. Self-publishing is culturally situated according in part to ongoing constructions of class, race, gender, stage of life, and building, as well as the ongoing articulation of domesticity, the disciplines, vocations, and professions. We know too, as I have been hinting, that amateur doings and doability would come to be situated in relation to the structure and content of mass culture. Richard Ullman starts the clock on mass culture with the major monthly magazines of the late 1890s, while it was the model of commercial broadcasting, radio again, developed in the late 1920s and 1930s, that would come to epitomize mass culture for its later and most influential critics. But mass culture is less to the point here than managerial culture. The so-called managerial revolution of the late 19th century produced the modern corporation and with it the modern office, replete with new genres of and new tools for communication, new bureaucratic imperatives, and new labor cohorts and configurations. The printer's monopoly on the look of printedness, broken with the advent of amateur printing, collapsed with the proliferation of typewriters and the ensuing century of innovation directed at reproducing typescript without setting type. The technologies of the mimeograph, hectograph, photo offset, and eventually Xerox. Journalism, like English professordom, had become a profession. Yes, but office work, its patterns and practices had undergone an even bigger and more salient change. Of course, it will take a lot more than generalizations like these to explain the specific forms that amateur publishing has taken in the extended era of managerial capital, and I can offer only the briefest gesture in that regard. Amateurdom eventually did connect to the fandom of the 1930s through figures like Lovecraft, who participated in both domains. And amateur radio connected to fandom too through the figure of Hugo Gernsback, who promoted amateur radio and published magazines that eventually included and explored what he called scientifiction. In other ways, however, fanzine fandom was substantially its own animal. To the extent that there was one, the Thomas Harris of, of fandom was Sam Moskowitz, a prolific chronicler and devoted collector who had become a fan at age 14 and then stuck around for life, even working professionally for a time as an editor for one of Gernsback's magazines. Moskowitz published a multi-part history of science fiction fandom, which was republished as a typescript book in 1954. Entitled The Immortal Storm, its 250 pages cover only the 1930s, 
though Moskowitz hoped that someone would publish a sequel that would be appropriately bibliographical and detailed, complete with the individual personalities, aims, ambitions, and emotional motivations that make his chronicle of associations, rivalries, and upsets the very obsessive work that it is. Reading The Immortal Storm, along with a selection of fanzines from the 1950s, offers a snapshot of fandom at this juncture. By 1953, to give some idea, the accumulated corpus of fanzine titles was roughly 9% printed, 17% reproduced by Ditto, 60% reproduced by Mimeograph, and 14% in another category, or in a category unknown to indexers. In general, but only in general, the earliest fanzines were small and printed, 6 by 4.5 inches, in an era when most of the commercial pulp magazines were 7 by 10. Then came the brief day of the hectograph, when fanzines grew to 8.5 by 11 inches and turned purple, but could be reproduced in batches no bigger than about 50 copies. Next came the mimeograph, which became fandom's most popular and consistent medium of publication, at least into the mid-1960s. Fanzine archives and collections are full of mimeographs, easily recognizable by their soft, absorbent paper, which took mimeograph ink so well. As late as 1986, one astute fan noted Riley, mimeography recapitulates hagiography. Earlier fans were not of hagiography, but of egoboo, short for ego-boosting. Like amateurdom before it, fanzine fandom was intensely self-referential forever consolidating itself as itself by means of chronicles, conventions, published comments, correspondence, and collecting, as well as reviews, digests, indexes, insider jokes, and jargon. Like amateurdom, fandom put a premium on originality and authenticity, yet it largely escaped an anti-modern tinge by focusing on what one fan called the literature of tomorrow, science fiction. I think I can safely generalize that fandom to this point remained more engaged than amateurdom was with the for-profit sphere from which it distinguished itself, because of consistent if modest crossover by figures like Lovecraft and Moskowitz, as well as a certain amount of rubbing shoulders at conventions and for the purposes of collecting. One might speculate that fandom differed from amateurdom in this respect, partly because science fiction, the catalyzing object of fandom self-imagination, evolved and persisted as a lowbrow form, so that literary critical authority over it was never relegated to the academy, but instead remained in negotiation across fandom and commercial, primarily pulp, publishing, and, at a remove of course, Hollywood. The late 19th century evolution of the literary as an object of academic inquiry make no difference to fandom, though the evolution of psychology as an object of inquiry may have mattered. The amateurs of early amateurdom had been all about building character. Now, the no less passionate fans of fandom had personalities. As Francis Laney puts it in a syllabus for a fanzine, a good fanzine has an editorial persona, or some extensionalization of the editor. It is not that amateur newspapers of the 19th century lacked editorial personae, it's just that having them didn't figure this explicitly or grandiloquently into the self-consciousness of amateurdom. The denizens of fanzine fandom, almost universally white and male into the 1960s, saw themselves as selves and selves of a special sort. It wasn't membership that made them unique, it was more that a prior uniqueness made them sensible as members. 
Fandom persists, of course, radically diversified, expanded, and online. Now we have scholarly fan studies too, a dom of sorts if there ever was one, relying not on amateur self-publishing, but rather on the not exactly profit-driven publishing of the contemporary academy. But I'm going to break off my story of doms, amateurdom, and fandom here before the language of underground or subculture versus mainstream takes hold in order to reflect briefly, if speculatively, on the history of amateurs, DIY publishing, and only by extension the character of zines. The more recent efflorescence of zines, the recurrent rhythms of that efflorescence, and the scope and character of the relevant zine scenes all deserve further attention. My interest finally in proposing a connection to the media history of documents with which I have been concerned in these pages. Rather than take the self-chronicling of amateurs and fans entirely at face value, I have tried instead to gesture more broadly toward the scriptural economy, its trajectory of engagement with consumer culture, and in particular, its late 19th century expansion in the service of managerial capital. That framing, I hope, helps reveal some of the selectivity if not the shortcomings of any dichotomy like mainstream versus subculture, or better put, any schematic that might simply contrast public and counter-public. In one sense, amateurdom and fandom are classic counter-publics in Michael Warner's term. They are self-imagined realms of belonging evolved both by and for communication and in opposition to the larger public sphere. Yet it would be well to remember that the Habermasian public sphere with its sharp line between private and public, between the home and the coffee house, the manuscript letter and the printed news sheet, depends upon a very idealized notion of the print publication, the event of issuing into public, that may more accurately refer to 18th and early 19th century life in Western Europe than to later periods or other locales. Certainly today, the eventfulness of publication is complicated by the scale and temporalities of the web, the entanglement of publication with search technology, for instance, the prevalence of dead links and dynamic content, uneven and obscure calendars of updates and subscriptions, and so on. But even before the web, in the extended era of amateurdom and fanzine fandom, the enormous pressures of social differentiation and the growth of institutions, of which the modern corporation only looms the largest in my ken, worked increasingly to complicate the eventfulness of publication. In short, amateur newspapers, fanzines, and their successors have always been imagined in contrast to commercially published periodicals, but that imagination itself has become increasingly incumbent on other unacknowledged contrasts, such as that between the zine and the less published or the semi-published documents that issue forth amid our increasingly institutionalized existence. Think here of the reports and proposals of the corporate workplace, the newsletters and programs of the Voluntary Association and Congregation, the pamphlets of the Public Health Agency, the course packs once ubiquitous on college campuses, and even the much maligned annual Christmas letters proper to that most important institution of control, the middle-class nuclear family. Susan Sontag notes of the amateurization of photography that it became enrolled in the surface of important institutions of control, notably the family and the police. Amateurdom and fandom, by these lights, are less counter-publics than they are counter-institutions, loosely self-organizing assemblages of members, male, media, and lore that defy institutionalization partly by reproducing it cacophonously in an adolescent key. 
Later zine scenes and altar arenas differ from the doms of amateurdom and fandom, no doubt, yet they too might be studied not just for how they contrast with commercial publication, but also for the ways in which that contrast tends to obscure other things, including the forever expanding and baroquely structured dominion of the document. We have gotten particularly good at noticing the ways that amateur cultural production has emerged and thrived online, and to what effects, but we may not be as good yet, even in our fondness for DIY publishing, at seeing from all angles the contexts that have helped to configure DIY. Our recent zines and the recent pressing questions of zines? Variously nostalgic reactions to digital communications media? To some extent, that is certainly the case though saying so too easily neglects the massive diversity of digital communications, which include everything from blogs and vlogs, with the tenor of zines to backward-looking paper-imagining forms like the PDF, now used to e-publish so that others may print out. In addition, DIY publishing needs to be located within and against DIY more generally. The futurologist Alvin Toffler, who was already using the term prosumer in 1980, alas, not prosumerdom, came pretty close to predicting today's independent video, home offices, and distributed computing, but his description of 1980s-style DIY may come as more of a surprise. His futurological extrapolations take as their point of departure the then-new DIY home pregnancy test kits, direct long-distance telephone dialing, self-service gasoline pumps, and automated teller machines, ATMs, and the then-familiar mixtapes, copy shops, and film-processing kiosks, and I think it makes a wonderfully evocative context for, among other things, the imminent availability of desktop publishing, which arrived courtesy of Aldous and Apple to the embrace of amateurs and others.